This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, we have to ask you this for our hot question of the day because we know it is such a hot button issue has to do with TransLink salaries, right? So let me lay this out for you. What's happened? For the first time in four years, TransLink has gone through the process of examining the pay and the salaries of its executives. They use the help of an independent consultant to do this. That report concludes that in order to maintain and attract and keep top talent, they need to increase the range of salaries. Doesn't mean that everybody's getting a raise. Doesn't mean that everybody's automatically going to make the top end of this. What they're saying is, you know, when you say you you could make between this and this in your job, that's what they're doing. So what it means is the CEO could potentially make between four hundred and six to five hundred and seventeen thousand dollars a year. So we're asking you for our hot question of the day: Is that too high? Or do you think, no, they have to attract top talent? Go to SimiSarah980 on Twitter to cast your vote on this. You can email me, simi at cknw.com. I've already been getting lots of emails on this. Not surprising because I know every time we talk about raises for TransLink officials or Metro Vancouver officials, you name it, we we get the response from you on this. You can call our buzz line as well, 604-331-BUZZ, 331-2899. But what do you think? With these types of salary ranges for TransLink, is it too high? Or do you think, no, they got to compete. They've got to attract top talent. What's your take on that? Around this time yesterday, we were just starting to get some indications, some inclination that there might be a break in the story of the manhunt for BC murder suspects, Briar Smigelski and Cam McLeod. And as we now know, that is definitely what we heard. Our CMP in Manitoba having a press conference yesterday to say the manhunt is over in the northern part of that province, saying that they had found, almost 24 hours ago exactly, two bodies believed to be those of the suspects. This morning, at approximately 10 a.m., our CMP officers located two male bodies in the dense brush within one kilometer from where the items were found. This is approximately eight kilometers from where the burnt vehicle was located. At this time, we believe these are the bodies of the two suspects wanted in connection with the homicides in British Columbia. An autopsy is being scheduled in Winnipeg to confirm their identities and to determine their cause of death. That is the Assistant Commissioner Jane McClatchy from Manitoba RCMP. Those autopsies scheduled for today. So let's find out more about this now. Joining us is Diana Foxall, Global News reporter in Winnipeg. Diana, thanks for being back with us. No problem, Simi. Thanks for having me. It sounds like, from what I've heard described, it was quite the process to even get the bodies out and bring them to Winnipeg. You are absolutely right on that. Um, so my colleague Joe Scarpelli, who's up in Gillum, said it took about 10 hours between actually finding the bodies around 10 o'clock yesterday morning and getting them over to the airport in Gillum. So these bodies were spotted about a kilometer away from where some items linked to the suspects were found on the shoreline of the Nelson River. Um, and just looking at uh, video of the area where these bodies were found, uh, they had to be taken out on a boat brought over to a loading dock and then popped onto a truck and driven to the airport. From there, they were uh, sent down to Winnipeg late last night, each in their own separate plane. And then from there, uh, we are hearing that they are conducting the autopsies today. Right. Okay. And what kind of questions do you think still linger here? Honestly, I don't know if there's perhaps more questions now that the bodies believe to be the suspects, um, that they're found dead. Um, of course, we are still waiting for confirmation that this is officially the bodies of the suspects, but uh, certainly we're looking for cause of death here. Uh, that's going to be one of the big things after the identification. Uh, was it succumbing to the elements? Was it an act of violence between one of them, between both of them? Was it uh, 
maybe some wildlife? Was it starvation? Uh, we really don't know. And uh, Assistant Commissioner Jane McClatchy, uh, who you just played some tape of, she she wouldn't give us anything yesterday. Uh, we're also kind of looking at the timeline of when they may have died if the uh, autopsies are able to provide that. We know the last confirmed sighting was July 22nd. That's more than two weeks between then and when the bodies were found yesterday. So perhaps getting a better idea of when they may have died um, and just kind of being able to piece the story together a bit better with that information. Right. And did they give any indication since then about, I know you talked about how difficult it was, right, to get the bodies out. So had they not been in that area before? Was this an area that was new to them? It sounds like this would have been an area that they had searched before, but perhaps by air. Um, we know they searched more than 11,000 square kilometers of the area up there. And again, this was found eight kilometers. The bodies were found about eight kilometers away from where the uh, burnt out Toyota RAV4 was discovered back in the early stages of this investigation in northern Manitoba. Um, so this would have been within their search area, I believe. We didn't get exact confirmation if they'd visited the site uh, previously by foot. Uh, it sounds like probably not, but we know that they spotted that damaged boat on Friday via a helicopter search. So that was really instrumental in leading them to the bodies that were found yesterday. Right. It sounds like a, a, a civilian found what, like a sleeping bag or something right along the side of the river. Yeah. From what we're hearing, it sounds like um, so a local tour guide found a sleeping bag kind of drifting along the river and notified RCMP. And from there, they were able to go up, pick out a, a better area and kind of pinpoint that location, found the boat, found the items that were linked to the suspects. Although, again, we aren't being told what exactly those are, if it was kind of personal effects, if it was supplies. Um, and then they were able to get in, go in on foot and with dogs and then just find these bodies yesterday. But looking at the video of the terrain, uh, you can understand why it would be incredibly difficult not just to find bodies in that area, but also to get them out and uh, on planes to get them looked at. Right. So then from what you've heard, Diana, is it all over then in Gillum? Is the RCMP leaving? Is it getting back to normal there? So yesterday when they made the announcement, RCMP basically said the manhunt is over. Um, given that they've released such minimal information, they've been pretty tight-lipped throughout this whole investigation, not giving much away. Uh, for them to come out and say, we found two bodies, we believe these are the bodies of the suspects, I think that's pretty good confirmation. Again, still waiting on the official results from the autopsy, uh, but that says a lot. So certainly the police presence in Gillum has been toned down since then. They are just kind of getting officers out. I was told by my colleague up in Gillum that police were kind of flying back down to Winnipeg. It was a lot calmer. There was really no activity out this morning in the early hours when normally there would have been over the past two and a half weeks. So uh, right. things winding down from a police presence. Certainly forensic investigators were at the site yesterday where the bodies were found late into the evening. Uh, but it sounds like otherwise things are wrapping up. Right. So then just to reiterate here, Diana, before we let we go, let you go, do we know when the autopsy results might be coming? I don't have a concrete answer for you on that, unfortunately, and I would love to. Um, I think hopefully in the next day or so we would have it. Um, again, this has been just such a, a case with like global interest, not yeah. just sort of a BC specific, a Manitoba specific, or even a Canada specific. Um, this is really something that everyone has been following. So uh, I, I imagine RCMP will want to get those results out pretty quickly and hopefully who knows, maybe later today, ideally tomorrow would be great. Uh, but the sooner the better. All right, Diana, thank you so much for your time. You're so very welcome. Thank you. That is Diana Foxall, Global News reporter in Winnipeg, where the bodies believed to be that of Barsh Migelski and Cam McLeod have been brought now. As you've been hearing and as we've been talking about this morning, for the first time in four years, Translink has gone through the process of examining the pay and salaries of its executives. And with the help of an independent consultant, they have concluded that they need to increase the range of salaries for their top level executives such as the new salary range for the CEO, Kevin Desmond, runs from 406000 a year to $517,000 a year. So how did they get to this point? And how much of a raise are these executives actually going to get? For more on this story now, we're joined now by Global News senior reporter Janet Brown. Hi, Janet. 
Good morning, Simi. Yes, uh, those are the numbers out there, and they are the result of the Executive Compensation Plan uh, carried out by TransLink. As you say, it's done every four years, the last one done four years ago, and another one will be done in another four years from now. And they feel that it's a more fair and equitable way of looking at salaries of the top executives. Now, this covers a total of 18 executives, Simi, at TransLink. And um, we talked with the TransLink board chair, Tony Gugliata. He feels that the plan is indeed fair, and he says it was aligned with other pay scales at other Canadian transportation organizations. Here's more of what he has to say. On a regular basis, uh, you know, you need to go out to the market and sort of do a refresh of the salary ranges to ensure that you're still sort of with, you know, representing the market. This process here is very common to uh, uh, what companies would do when they're determining sort of their executive compensation plan, is they would essentially look at benchmark with benchmarks, which are companies sort of in the same industry and positions within the same industry, and they would determine sort of what the market uh, range would be for those salaries, um, and then they would sort of establish, uh, you know, the salaries within, within those ranges. So it's a much more fairer way, and it's an objective way of sort of determining, you know, what we should be paying our executives. Uh, because, you know, to be quite honest, our executives, uh, uh, we want to attract and retain them. And if, if an executive does leave and we're trying to recruit an executive uh, from that same industry, that's essentially what the market uh, pays for those uh, positions. And so we want to make sure that we're sort of in the ballpark in terms of uh, our compensation for our executives. Well, it sounds like we're all in the wrong industry then, Janet, because if that's what the market is paying, he said that a whole bunch of times, and we need to be in that market. Uh, let's lay out the numbers for the listeners, as you did a little bit uh, at the beginning here, Simi. The new salary range for the CEO, Kevin Desmond, has been set between 406000 to the top end, 517000 Now, that's about 25% higher than his previous range that started at 325000 and went up to to 406,000. Right now, Mr. Desmond makes 405,000 as well as benefits and expenses. Now, it's going to be up to the TransLink board if Mr. Desmond actually gets a pay hike, and that will be considered during his yearly work review. Now, are the numbers too high? Well, they are, according to the Canadian Taxpayers Federation BC director Chris Sims. Here's what she has to say. Well, this newly approved range is very high. We have to keep in mind that the CEO of TransLink already makes more money in salary than the Prime Minister of Canada. He already makes more money in salary than the Premier of British Columbia. And he's in charge of what is really a regional bus board. And now they've approved this very big salary range. Again, the board needs to approve the actual salary increase. But this range is concerning. If they increase the CEO of TransLink's salary within this range, he could easily be making more money than the head of New York City's transit authority. New York City moves around 7 million people per day on their transit system. TransLink, half a million. Why on earth would we be paying anywhere near that range? We should be looking for the best case scenario and the best use of our money. And we need to ask ourselves, are we getting better service from TransLink than the citizens are of New York City? You know, it's really not a comparison. And to have them comparing themselves to other CEOs who are making scads of dough isn't justifiable. They need to look at their own house and they need to look at how much money this is costing. And we need to remind people that if they start comparing themselves to CEOs in the private sector, TransLink is paid for through tax dollars, both the TransLink tax on gasoline, the parking tax, forms of property tax, transfer payments, you name it. So all of this is coming out one way or another from taxpayers and ratepayers. And is this a good use of our money? We think this is a big, big price tag. All right, that's Chris Sims there from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. It's so interesting that she used New York as an example, though, Janet, because I've been reading about that system. It's broken, and they've been having a hard time finding <laughs> top talent to tackle the issues that the New York City Transit Authority has. It is, like, absolutely broken. Well, that's interesting. Maybe they'll come knocking on the door of Mr. Desmond <laughs> <laughs> and offer him a job. Who knows? Right. Um, but we once again, though, to reiterate, Janet, like, the raise is not automatic, 
No, it's certainly not. This is just a suggestion. It's a pay range covering 18 executives. It is a suggestion that this is what these executives should be earning. And I gave you an example of what they've suggested for the CEO, Kevin Desmond. It now goes to the TransLink board. Uh, They do the yearly review with Mr. Desmond. They decide if he deserves a pay hike and and how much of a pay hike, if any. Uh, Let me give you a few more examples of uh, what some of the pay ranges are being suggested for some of the others. Uh, TransLink's chief financial officer, as well as the heads of the Coast Mountain Bus Company, which runs the buses under TransLink, and also the BC Rapid Transit Company, those ranges for those three jobs, Simi, have been set at a minimum of 279000 up to 372000 And TransLink also sent me an email uh, late yesterday afternoon in regards to this story, and they wanted to lay out a few salaries of others that they used in comparison uh, for this pay range story. And they said, by comparison, the CEO of Metrolinx, which includes the city of Toronto, Hamilton, a couple of suburbs as well, uh, that person makes $506,000. And also the head of BC Ferries, the CEO, Mark Collins, he earns $425,000. So just putting that out there for some of our listeners uh, to offer up some sort of comparison as well. Right. I remember when we went through this uh, under the previous BC Liberal government, remember the head of BC Ferries was making too much? Like These salaries all got dialed back in the last, what, seven or eight years? They did. And I remember quite a few years ago, um, in the old, old days, shall we call it, um, a way back when TransLink used to give a, a certain percentage to the CEOs and executives for pay hikes, and that received a lot of criticism. So because of that, they have gone to this new system of, of pay scales and having input from an independent consultant. So they, fi- they feel that this is a more fair way of doing things rather than just giving somebody a percentage for a pay raise. And um, the fact also, I must say, that they offered up the board chair to talk to me, a member of the media. Um, I feel that that's been a big improvement too for TransLink because as I say in the old days, it was difficult to talk yeah. to anybody about these these things. And, you know, they tried to scurry away uh, before, but at least they're, they're trying to, uh, you know, right. present the other side of the story, shall we say, and some explanation uh, for these increases. So there you go. Just lay it out for the listeners and let's hear what yep. they have to say about this, Simi. Also, the question here, Janet, is and you've been covering this story for a long time. Is the system better run now than it was previously? Like you talked about broken escalators and broken elevators and all of that. Has that situation gotten better? You know, that's a question you have to ask the listeners. Um, I don't ride the system as much as I used to. Uh, I used to ride it every day, and I used to see all these issues. You know, maybe open it up to the listeners who ride the system. But I did get an email from somebody this morning, Simi, and they pointed out to me um, last week, they took the train from Scott Road Station in Surrey, which is the last stop before they crossed the Fraser River. They went a couple of stops into New Westminster one way without having the compass card, so sort of pay as you go. It was... uh, uh, they said four dollars and twenty five cents. So return it was you know nine fifty or or thereabouts. And they said you know what you know it, the ride was less than ten minutes. It cost them nine fifty, um, almost an hour's pay at minimum wage. And they said you know what it's cheaper it's for me to drive. Yeah. I, I'm not going to do that again. There's also the added cost of parking, of course, if you take your vehicle. But just in terms of gas versus a short ride on SkyTrain, they said, you know what, that's too much for me to pay. That takes an hour out of my salary almost. Yeah. And so, you know, different people have different responses to this, depending on what part of the system they take, how long they go for in the system, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Whether the system is improved under Mr. Desmond, I'm not sure. I can't answer that. Um, you'd have to ask the riders, I think, Simi. I think we and, will. Yeah. All right. Good. Thank you Thank so you. much, Janet. You're welcome. Appreciate Bye-bye. your time. That's Global News senior reporter Janet Brown, and she raises an excellent point. If you're going to be paying more to the executives, are you getting more out of the system? You're the transit riders out there. You're the people who use the system. Is it better now than it was five years ago? Housing affordability, those have become kind of buzzwords almost, right, in the last five years here in Metro Vancouver and all over BC as we've seen prices go up and up and up. Everybody talks about it. Oh, we're talking about affordability. We're talking about housing affordability. 
what are we actually doing about it? And does anything actually work when it comes to making real estate and housing more affordable? Well, the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade is getting involved in this discussion. They've put forward some recommendations to the big federal parties on the things that those parties can do to address the housing affordability issue as of course we do have a federal election coming up this fall. It's one that federal governments have kind of talked about and been flummoxed on really uh, in recent years. So what should they do and how is the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade proposing that they uh, really attack this? Well, to talk more about that, we're joined now by Evie Mastel, who is the vice chair of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade. Thank you very much for being here. You're very welcome, Simi. Uh, What was the process like for coming up with these suggestions and this plan? Well, this report's been in the uh, works for quite a few months and uh, in the process of, uh, first of all, doing an environmental scan of all the initiatives that the federal government already has underway to address this issue. I mean, they they announced the National Housing Strategy and uh, and just more recently the expert panel, which will really do a deep dive into into the issue. So they're certainly um, showing some interest in, in helping the municipalities and the provincial governments out with this issue. Um, so it's been in the works for a while. Um, certainly the Board of Trade um, um, discussed with a number of different stakeholders, private and public sector, um, as to the possible um, ways that the federal government can help the situation. So these are all recommendations that have been sort of uh, tested a little bit and tried out in the in the market. And uh, we're hoping, you know, at least even if some of them could be adopted, I think any anything, everything will help right now. It, there's no silver bullet here. So uh, there's a number of recommendations in the report and um, we, okay. which we think are all viable. Yeah, let's talk about some of those. Which ones do you think they they should really pay attention to? Well, there's basically, um, we've divided them into sort of four buckets, and um, sort of one of them being tax policy. As we know, the federal government has a lot of different uh, tax levers that they can use to incentivize um, developers um, to build uh, the type of housing that's needed for the average income earner in, in our city. Um, so, for one example, would be giving a GST rebate on capital uh, uh, investments on purpose-built rental, and it's been shown that even just with that one change, just with a GST rebate, could lead to a three to six percent savings uh, for the renter in terms of rent. Um, so that's just one measure, uh, one tax possibility. Um, other measures are um, looking even not even just incentivizing the developers, but even single-family homeowners to you know build a laneway house or build a secondary suite in their home, either through um, low-interest loans or maybe some sort of tax rebate, the way we've seen for electrical vehicles, which has been very successful in um, you know, getting people to switch to electrical vehicles more. So there's even things in the report that's, you know, as I said, it's not just geared to developers, but um, um, you know, it's private people as well. Right. Um, the other one, too, is really looking at uh, the federal government um, puts a lot of money into our transportation infrastructure along with other levels of government. Um, so there's things that the federal government can do to say, okay, let's, um, you know, as an extra incentive, what are the plans around housing around that station? Uh, we see here in the Lower Mainland a number of stations where there really isn't very much housing development at all. So really starting to tie housing development to a little bit more in with the transportation investments as well as, as an incentive to move some of these projects forward. Right. How do you balance that, though, with the potential for price increases? Right? When you incentivize things like secondary suites and laneway homes, it's a great idea, but then housing prices also could go up because people think those homes are now worth more as well. Um. I, I that's that could be an, an issue, but um, but the, what this is really uh, this report is really addressing is the big gap that we have in purpose-built rental, affordable affordable rental. Um, we the pop, according to our population growth, we need about six thousand uh, new units purpose-built rental per year. In 2018, only about 1,900 units was were built. Um, there's about 5,800 units in in progress right now, which will take still several years to actually come in the market, but there's a huge gap between our population growth and what we're actually providing. Um, so that's what we really need to be looking at here and addressing that because it's, it's leading to workers moving out of the city. Uh, there's not only the economic cost, but there's also the social cost of people not having secure housing. Um, you know, another stat that really kind of blew me away in this report was, you know, since 1991, we've added a million people to the Metro Vancouver region, yet we have lost 6,000 rental units. 
So we've been going backwards, actually, for the last 30 years. Um, so it's, it's right. It's, you know, well, what do we attribute that to then? Is that the federal government used to seem like it had a much more stronger role in kind of helping with affordability? Do you think they they downgraded that? They got out of that business? Um, I, I think. That's fair to say. I mean, certainly after World War II, that was uh, the whole purpose of CMHC was to provide affordable housing for the returning veterans. Um, so that was the initial purpose of CMHC, and, and their role has certainly changed over the years. Um, so I, I think, yeah, from all levels of government, they've really, you know, really stepped back from uh, developing that, you know, specifically purpose-built rental. Um, so I don't think it's fair to say it was just the federal government. I think all levels of government uh, really got away from it. And, and developers have been saying for years as well that it just doesn't, uh, there isn't the business case for them to build that kind of housing. So that's why we need these incentives from the different layers of government, levels of government to actually, um, you know, fill, close that gap. So it does make financial sense for the private sector to do as well. Right. So then what are you hoping the, these political parties will do with this report? Well, we hope they will at least discuss it because I, I think affordable housing is going to be a key issue. It certainly hasn't been in previous elections, but um, I, I think sometimes people may think, oh, that's just a local issue, but it's not really. We're seeing this all across Canada, so it is very much a national election issue. And um, so that's, I think, part of the hope that at least we'll start the discussion and um, you know, all the parties will have some kind of solutions or ideas or something to put on the table that can be discussed during the election period. Right, that's the problem is, right? But for the average person, it's great. They th- they say they have a plan, but how do we know they're actually going to take that plan, take it seriously, and, and build those units? Yeah, that's that's what elections are about, yeah, is really so looking at the track record and say, okay, this is what you said you were going to do, what have you done? Do you feel that are federal parties receptive to these kinds of reports? Have you had any indication that they might be? Well, I think so. I mean, when you look at the current government, I mean, certainly they have been taking steps with the national housing strategy, um, with the plans to uh, assemble this expert panel. So they're certainly showing interest in uh, design. And just the announcement yesterday, actually, in the city of Vancouver, of the federal government assisting with the, uh, the construction of 1,100 units of rental housing. So there's certainly this government is certainly showing uh, interest and desire to, um, you know, be more actively involved. So that's very encouraging. Right. And for the Board of Trade to, to do this then, Evie, is this an indication that, as you pointed out earlier, uh, this is bad for business? Housing inaffordability is bad for business? Yeah. it. Yeah. We, uh, our member survey shows that um, it's, 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 it's not, um, yeah, it's, I'm just pulling out my numbers here, but uh, yeah, we had 37% of businesses are considering relocating outside of the Metro Vancouver region because they are having difficulty attracting and retaining workers because of the affordable housing issue. And it's, and it's, it's what's scary, it's, it's not, those aren't just small businesses, an even higher proportion of businesses with 50 or more employees are looking at relocating. So we've seen that in the city of Vancouver, they've been, they've been, their number of business licenses has been dropping over the last five years. So we see that exodus already happening. All right. And this is a good time to bring it up. There's an election coming up. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Yep, yep, might as well. <laughs> all right, good luck. Thank you, Evie. Okay, you're very welcome. That is Evie Mistel, Vice Chair of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade. Board of Trade getting involved in the housing affordability discussion. All right, let's talk about this potential toxic disaster that looms on the Fraser River. When I saw that headline, I thought, wait, whoa, whoa, what are we talking about here? Well, Mission is raising concerns about an aging sewage pipeline that runs under the Fraser River. There are worries that it could fail. And what would happen if that did occur? An estimated 11 million litres of waste into the Fraser River each day. To talk more about this, we're joined now by Pam Alexis, who is the Mayor of Mission. Mayor Alexis, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me and making the time. Well, this is, uh, I think, a topic that people should be hearing about. Like, What are the concerns with this pipeline? Well, it's an aging piece of infrastructure. It's 37 years of age. Um, it's in 
a, a vulnerable spot in that the bottom of the freezer is um, could be very corrosive on the actual pipe, and so we're not sure as to how long we have, um, and a breach could happen. We had a breach on the land portion next to the Mission Raceway about six years ago, and so with the impending growth that we're seeing, because we're looking at a 2% population increase every year over the next at least foreseeable future, we absolutely need to twin the pipe because we did potentially reach capacity in 2017. And so it's time to twin this pipe and we need some assistance. So this is the only pipe that takes raw sewage out of mission. Correct. And so if it fails, that's a almost sounds like an environmental disaster. It is an absolutely an environmental disaster. And uh, we have, of course, received uh, some funding for the um, project. However, inflation and uh, certain conditions upon various approvals from various ministries have certainly escalated the cost. And so we are... Uh, needing an additional $22 million to complete this project. Right. It's, so it sounds like you're having to jump through hoops, and the longer you're jumping through hoops, the price keeps going up. Absolutely. So just in with respect to construction costs, we've seen a 50% increase uh, in the last, say, five years. And so it's, it's really complex that when we get these infrastructure grants, and, and I'm meaning we, um, various communities all over British Columbia, we are basically competing for very specialized services that only certain companies can provide. So, for example, um, someone, we may not get that many people interested in, in doing a certain portion because they just don't have the expertise. And so we're actually competing with other communities for those same kinds of companies, which, of course, drives the price up as well. Right. Is there any way to check on the health of the pipe? No, it's pressurized, and so we cannot get a camera in. And so the the whole premise was to have us twin the pipe so that we could divert the sewer, check the health of the pipe, make any repairs if necessary so that we have some options. And, you know, I, I have to say that it was likely the mistake of our forefathers who 37 years ago thought a single pipe would be adequate, um, but it's just no longer the way. And we're expected to double in population over the next 25 years. And so we have to be ready for the growth and really plan accordingly. So um, unfortunately, there aren't any other options. Uh, If there was a breach, we would have to likely dig a latrine and truck the waste to the treatment plant, the James treatment plant that we share, of course, the services with the city of Abbotsford. Right. Well, that doesn't sound good, does it? So no. do the, all the levels of government, does everybody agree that something needs to be done here? Yes, they agree that something needs to be done, but they're limited by the scope of their of the perimeters of the grants. And so there are no, um, there's no more funding in specific grants. What we're looking for is a specific, is a, pardon me, is an injection of funds outside of that grant uh, cycle or, or that pot that came from the, the original grant. So just to let you know, too, there's likely six other communities in British Columbia that are faced with the same issues. So escalating costs, uh, certainly complex conditions on approvals. And so they're seeing uh, they're all over budget and incomplete projects and the risk with an incomplete project, once you run out of time, is that you forfeit the loss of the original grant money that you received in the first place. So even if we uh, received an extension and changed the scope of the project to design only of both the river and the land portion, we would lose um, probably all but a million dollars of the grant money that we've received already. So it would even put us further behind. And we don't know if we can apply for the next round of funding and how long that would take. And if there's a change of government, then what does that funding look like? Is it different than what we would expect from the last three years? So we're in a really difficult situation. Yeah, it sounds like that because it, would you say this is the result of just poor planning? You said there's a number of other communities facing the same thing. Is it all the same thing that nobody thought growth was going to happen like that? 
I think for us in particular, ours is certainly growth-related. Um, we've seen an affordability crisis in Metro Vancouver that really has opened the door for mission. And so we're seeing unprecedented growth. We can't build the townhouse or the multifamily units fast enough. So we've never seen this kind of growth before. And, and it is a result, of course, of you know the higher priced, um, certainly housing in Metro. And uh, we are seeing mostly residents of Metro moving to Mission because it's, uh, it's all about price point. Right. And you don't see that ending anytime soon? Nope. And you're saying Mission all. doesn't necessarily have the infrastructure to support all this? We are working on making sure we have the infrastructure. That's my job, planning for the future, absolutely. And so we can't do this without this second pipeline. Okay, so where are you at with that now? So what are the next steps here? Next steps are that we have certainly, um, well, we've, we've almost completed the land portion of the project, and now we have only a, a short window of time to complete the river portion because it's environmentally sensitive. And so if we can't get the funding this for in time to do the um, river portion, we're going to have to wait another year to see if we can possibly apply for another grant, which of course makes everything more vulnerable, the environment yeah. is at risk. Um, and I'm saying if we can't, Likely, if we wait for another cycle and if we're successful, we probably will, it'll take a year to go through the approval process again. And so we're looking at likely 2021 if we are successful in receiving uh, an additional grant. So we've got high risk uh, as far as, uh, in my opinion, the environment is at risk the longer we wait because we don't know the health of the pipe. So really, what we absolutely need is a cash injection outside of a grant cycle so that we can complete this project right. on time. And that's the bottom line. So certainly, both levels of government are aware, and I won't stop until we get some action. Well, Mayor Alexis, good luck with that. Thank you. Thank you so much. That is Pam Alexis, the mayor of Mission, raising concerns, and those are big concerns, about the single pipeline that takes raw sewage out of Mission. They say it's aging, it's under pressure, they're afraid that it's going to crack, and then it'll just dump you know, untreated sewage into the Fraser River. All right, let's talk a little science this week, shall we? Because I kept seeing this headline, and I thought this would be perfect for us to talk about on the show. What's the deal with these water bears on the moon? And I thought, you know, that just sounds bizarre. What is going on? Well, we're going to get somebody to explain it to us. It's Mark Martin, the Associate Professor of Biology at the University of Puget Sound. Mark, thanks for joining us today. Oh, I'm so delighted to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, I do love that enthusiasm. What is the deal with these water bears on the moon? What is that? You know, there's a saying that everybody likes, and the expression is a charismatic megavertebrate, things like giraffes or bears or lions or tigers. But in fact, tardigrades, though very small, are very much in the popular imagination. Uh, they're perhaps half a millimeter long, but what they're best known for is their ability to survive really extreme, extremely harsh conditions, including, in fact, radiation and the vacuum of space. So there was a, um, well, so you, perhaps you want to hear about tardigrades first, but I can tell you where this story came from. Which would you like to hear about? Well, you kept using tardigrades, so let's start with what, what is a tardigrade? A tardigrade is a small multicellular creature. It's, you can call it a microbe because you kind of need either a magnifying glass or a low-powered microscope to see them. They're little kind of, they're, they're, the old-fashioned expression for them, uh, water bears. Also, though we don't like it, moss piglets. Uh, tardigrade means slow walker, okay. and that, that name was uh, uh, coined perhaps 200 years ago. And what's interesting about them is you put a little piece of moss or lichen in water, and you spend a little time with a magnifying glass, and you'll see these tiny specks moving. And they are certainly very, very cute. They have eight legs, little claws on the ends of the legs, and they have a protruding mouth part that creates like a sucker for which they uh, go after uh, plant tissues, lichen tissues, or in some cases, even other tardigrades. Okay, so now that I know what those are, why are they on the moon? 
Ah, well, uh, there was a, actually an Israeli uh, an Israeli uh, attempt to land a particular spacecraft on the moon, and it failed last April. And on that particular spacecraft, they had a number of things, including something about the size of a DVD that had lots of information in it. And they had, like information of, of, of the various people that were involved. They even include some cell samples of the experimenters that put it together. Uh, and because they had some extra time, they put some tardigrades in there. They did so because tardigrades, again, are, have been shown to be very resistant to things like radiation in the vacuum of space. Then when you put them back in water, they kind of wake up from that state. I should say that when they do this, the process is called cryptobiosis. It's kind of like suspended animation. So those are the forms of the tardigrades that they put, perhaps 100,000 of them, which, believe me, isn't very many um, in terms of size, or isn't very much in terms of size. It's quite small. Right. And then when their probe crashed, there they are on the moon. Okay, so far this sounds like the makings of some kind of science fiction movie where this is at the part now where things start to go wrong. I so would, would I would so watch the heck out of that movie. I'm sure I mean, you would. <laughs> as they as they return to wreak their vengeance on Earth, that's cruelly uh, cruelly uh, marooned them there. But the fact of the matter is, if we were to go back to the moon as we hope to do, and came to that crash site and found the remains of this small disk, which very probably survived the crash and then put those desiccated little forms of the tardigrades back in water, where there's, of course, air, too, they would probably wake up. So and that's a pretty interesting thing to think about, that they're that resilient. Kind of, um, I, I, what I've often said, because uh, all of us have stresses to go through and difficulties, and I've often said that the tardigrade is my Patronus, <laughs> kind of re- a reminder that I can get through things. I like that little Harry Potterism for us. Um, okay, that's so right. right now they're up there, they're not active or anything because they're still in that suspended state of animation, but what other than water, do we know of any other ways they could wake up on the moon? Only if they were given a little bit of moisture and some, some probably some atmospheric pressure. Uh, as I as I thought about um, this this question, because in anticipation of speaking with you, I, you know I, I don't want to be one of those kind of sour face scientists that tell you things are impossible because you know we always get surprises in science. But when people say that a tardigrade can survive in vacuum, we know it has done it for several weeks in the lab. Right. That we know. You know what I was thinking of? I was thinking of the Jeff Goldblum character in Jurassic Park where he says, we know life always finds a way. I, 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 he's one of my heroes. Isn't he, isn't he just fabulous? Yes. And I, I, I would really love to see that. Now, as it stands, and I, I, I do have to be very direct about this, they're not going to do anything right now because there's not enough water. Um, there's not any atmospheric pressure. But um, I'm so hoping that someone can recover them and show that they survived all that. Now, we do know from space probes in the past that, uh, and there was one surveyor probe that landed in the 1960s, and an Apollo astronaut went to it maybe seven or eight years later, and from inside that space probe, they recovered bacteria that had survived that. Now, they weren't living there, but they were surviving. Right. So uh, I, I'm very hopeful that these interplanetary explorers have a future. This is Maybe really... we should mount a rescue expedition. <laughs> I was thinking, though, for a future trip to the moon, and I know many countries are kind of planning that. Is this the mm-hmm. first science experiment that you check on to see, you know, inadvertently, maybe we came across something important there? I agree completely. I know people that carry this a little bit far, and it's turned into, and you and I apparently like bad movies, um, yeah. and it sometimes gets into, like, weird science fiction movies, but this idea of learning how to survive extreme conditions, tardigrades have a lot to teach us, because when they become de- dehydrated down and they get into their, like, super-resistant state, they have to survive all kinds of things besides dryness, and they do. So I think there's a lot that we can learn about that. Well, I have learned so much today, Mark. Thank you for joining us. Oh, I appreciate the invitation. And I hope you don't have as extreme of a day as the tardigrades are having on the moon right now. I hope so, too. Thanks, Mark. You're very welcome. That's Mark Martin, an associate professor of biology at the University of Puget Sound. I learned so much. Hey, a week today, we want you to come down and celebrate the 75th anniversary of CKNW at the Anvil Center in New Westminster. Oh, we've got a huge event. All the shows are going to be live from there. We've got current and past hosts, a birthday cake, 
much, much more. And you know, there are so many voices that are associated with the history of this radio station. Uh, A few voices, though, for me anyway, really stand out. People like Jack Webster, uh, Rafe Mayer, and of course, Bill Good. I shared an office with Bill when I first started working here full-time. I I couldn't believe it myself that I was in the same office with this man, this legend. I grew up listening to him on this station. I watched Bill on TV. His experience, his knowledge, unparalleled. And so because we're celebrating our 75th anniversary, I wanted to sit down with him to talk about his memories of the 25-plus years that he spent at the station. So before we chat with him, just want to go back in time a little to 1988. That was the year when Bill Good began his award-winning show here on CKNW, The Bill Good Show, and this is what it sounded like. Good afternoon, I'm Bill Good. Today on this, our first program on CKNW, we'll be taking a look at the top of today's news with a potential strike looming by nearly 30,000 government employees as they demand better job security and more money. All this on the first Bill Good program on CKNW. Thank you for tuning in. As I start a new life, many may say I have never looked better. Let's get down to business first of all with Bob Plekis, the chief government... Well, Bill, thank you so much for joining us to do this today. It's fun to be back home. You ready to walk down memory lane? Oh, sure. <laughs> what I can remember. <laughs> what, when did you first come to NW? When did you first think, you know what, I think I might go work there? Well, I got a call from Ron Bremner, who was running the place then, and I'd had some talk with him in the past, but he called and he was serious. He said, um, would you be interested in doing talk radio? He'd seen some of my CBC forums um, and had determined that I was going to be his next talk show host, apparently. So we got together and uh, we haggled over a whole summer, And uh, but I knew that's what I wanted to do. I'd, Did you? Oh, yeah. I grew up listening to the NW. I grew up listening to Jack Webster. He was one of the people I most admired in this business in my entire life. And, um, you know, I'd done 10 years of sports, and I'd done 10 years of anchoring at CBC. I love live. Uh, The idea of being engaged in talk radio was like a dream come true. At the time, everybody was shocked that I would leave television, the big anchor job, right, and come to local radio station. But at the time, that local radio station was the biggest radio station probably share-wise in North America, and it was run by the Griffiths owned by the Griffiths, not run by them, because they were really hands-off. But it was really appealing to me, having worked for the CBC, which yeah. was basically run out of Ottawa, and was being cut to pieces, you know, in terms of the region. So coming to NW, to me, was a dream come true. And then Bremner went to BCTV and hired me to come there to do Canada, Canada Tonight. Tonight. I remember that. And I said, I'll do that as long as I can keep my radio job at NW. And he said... Yeah, sure. Not a problem. You've always valued that, because that would have been, what, the late 1980s? 88, I came 89? to NW in 88. Right. I don't remember what year I went to, but it would have been the early 90s in to mid-90s. 94, 93, 94, yeah, you yeah, were about, headed about tonight? That, when, I, when I went to BCTV. But even when you went to CTV as well, like you've always valued keeping the radio job. First that's, love. Really? Well, you know from doing both. Yes. I, I used to joke that as an anchor on television, you're the packaging for 100 <laughs> other people's work. You know, um, it's not that you don't work at it. You do, and you've got a fair bit of input into what happens. But on the radio, it's your show. You know, I used to tease my producers. I said, you know, in the end, argue with me all you want, but in the end, it's the Bill Good Show, and I'll make the last call. And um, and I had great producers. And but it was just oh, it was a, it was a I think twenty six years of uh, just doing what I wanted to do. And My whole life. I remember saying to you, because we used to share an office, and I remember saying to you, Bill, I don't know if I'm going to last as long in this business as you did because it's changed so much now with social media and instant feedback Tell and people. Right. <laughs> and I just thought back in the day, what was that like? I mean, what you said, the people that you had on, it was instantly news making, but you didn't have that constant feedback from people. People had to write you a letter if they wanted to say well, something. Well, it got to be email, yeah. and then it was Twitter before I left, but it. Um, yeah, the feedback, but I loved the feedback. I mean, that was, you know, talk radio really was, I mean, you had your finger on the pulse and you, you know, you kind of, I remember when the Reform Party started to form in British Columbia and Western Canada. Um, we knew on NW because of the calls that this was embryotic, but it was growing and you could just sense, you know, and you, it was sort of like an, an early warning system. <laughs> And and it came to be, you know, they you know they built and, and eventually morphed into the conservative party we know today. But they were a big deal for 
a lot of the 80s and early 90s. You were always must-listen radio. Was there somebody, like what interviews when you think back are you most proud of that really stick in your mind? They estimated that I did 40,000 interviews. What? Yeah. I haven't done a fact check on it, but that's what Jessica, my last producer, said. And I I assume it was something like that. So, you know, it's interesting. There was a fellow named Graham Cook who was a pedophile. And I won a National Radio Award, Actor Award, for that interview. And it was largely because of him. He, at some point in his life, wanted to warn other people about people like him. And it was a very compelling hour, frightening hour, because he sat across the desk from me and he was like, he looked like a college kid, you know, I mean, yeah. he, he, he did, he looked like the most innocent, normal, 28 or whatever he was, year old kid. And he told this horrific story of how he groomed whole families in order to get to the children. And it, so that, that's one that stands out in my mind. Um, one of the first interviews, well, the first interview I did with the prime minister was Pierre Trudeau. No, I think I was 33 years old, right? Uh, he intimidated Webster. Imagine what it felt like. He, I, he intimidated me the day he died because I was listening to the radio. I had CBC on. And they said, in a, in a few minutes, we're going to play an interview that Bill Good did with Pierre Elliott Trudeau. And I'm going, oh, God. That interview, 33. Yeah. But it was okay. But the fact that it was still, he still intimidated me. You know, I'm still going, oh, God, can I, do I have to listen to this? And am, am I going to be embarrassed? So that, Peter Ustinov, a fabulous actor, actor, fabulous interviewer, fabulous person. You know from what you do that you really get to know people when you have mm-hmm. long commercial islands and newscasts. And some people are not quite what you think they are. And some You're being people, so diplomatic about that, too. <laughs> okay, they're a pain in the ass. <laughs> yeah. But but he was wonderful, and, and most people were. Um, but he was a, a self-educated guy. At the time I interviewed him, he was the spokesperson for UNICEF. And um, just one of the most memorable interviews, Celine Dion, as a young woman. She was in this studio. It was down the hall, but it was here. Um, she was a big deal in Quebec, but she hadn't broken out yet. And she was known in Canada, but... She wasn't a big, big star the way she became. Um, uh, Frosty, I did Hootie and the Blowfish, an interview with them. You did, I'm sorry, Bill Good did an interview with Hootie, Hootie and, and the Blowfish. Blowfish. I did. You know, I took some pride in the fact that um, I had a pretty wide range of interests. You and sure a, did. And, and um, I always did my homework. And I remember Gladys Johnson, my first producer, she wanted me, a name just escaped me, a famous violinist. And she said, do you know so-and-so? And I said, who does he play for? <laughs> and she said, well, he's maybe the best violinist in the world. I but said, politicians, well, you said. I said, I better, I better learn about him. Yeah. And Pol- I did. And he was a fabulous interviewer. Uh, politicians, you've had them all. Was there any that said no to you that you wanted to get on but weren't able to? You know, Stephen Harper was very available until he became prime minister. And then the only time he came on my show after he became prime minister was on the day of an election when for his own purpose. He wanted to come on and you couldn't really do the kind of interview that you would normally do with the prime minister on election day, right? Mm -hmm. So, um... I remember that. That was 2011. I I don't know. I don't know what day it is. I don't know what year it is now. (laughs) (laughs) I have to look it up. (laughs) Almost. It's tough with politicians because you must have seen that too because there was a time when they would have to come on your show to get their message out and that changed over time. Well, it it was must. Yeah, you had to come on and I remember interviewing Joe Clark one day and um, I saw him a week or two later and he said, does everybody in British Columbia listen to your show? I said, well, I like to think so. He said, well, I just went to Park Royal and everywhere I went, people came up and said, I just heard you on with Bill Good. It was a pretty, pretty exciting time. Yeah, it would have been. Uh, Paul Martin, I remember you interviewed Paul Martin many, many times, times on the show. Many times. Yeah. And I really liked him. And remember Christy Clark. People think we were great friends, right? Because we shared an office the way you and I did yeah. for about five minutes a day. Well, she came in the office one day after she was leader of the Liberal Party and she said, you've been a bad, bad boy. I said, what have I done? <laughs> she said, you told a listener you didn't know if I'd make a good uh, premier. Did you? Yeah. I said, well, I don't. You haven't. I said, I thought Paul Martin would be a great prime minister. He wasn't. I liked him a lot personally. He was very interested in BC, always a very engaging guy and a great finance minister, great number two. But so I, you know, I just said to her, I don't know, you haven't done the job. You know, you, you, that's a job you've got to do before you can be judged. That's, that's the challenging part of this job that I have found, too, is that people, uh, politicians think that you're their friend or they don't want to come on unless they think you are their friend. Yeah, I don't think, you know, we, the, had, we had the kind of clout then that they couldn't not come on. Yeah. You know, and remember my old colleague, Rafe Mayer, I mean, he used to beat up on people like Gordon Campbell. 
I tried to be a little more civil. Um, but Campbell came on and he took it and because you had to. Yeah. Uh, you just couldn't say no to CKNW. Let's talk about that for a moment. You said you tried to be a little bit more civil. Was there a way you wanted to ask questions? Was there always something you wanted to get across? Well, certainly not not an agenda of mine. I I always had the, the view that the show was about the guest, and the audience wanted to know what the guest thought. I mean, I did an editorial every day, so people knew what I thought about issues. But when it came to an interview with a subject, I wanted it to be mostly about them. Um, and I tried to ask hard questions, but fair questions, and to treat people with respect. Um, it wasn't, to me, a battle or a war. Uh, it was an interview, and it was trying to get information for the audience. Um, Rafe and I had totally different styles, totally different personalities, but it worked as a one-two punch. I mean, pe- same people who like to listen to Rafe like to listen to Bill, it seems, um, and yet you couldn't find two more different people, I don't think, on the planet. That's true. Having known you Thank both, you. that's absolutely <laughs> <Thank> true. NW, <laughs> uh, 75 years. Yeah. It's amazing to think about that, isn't it? It's 70- just a bit older than me. <laughs> <laughs> I won't tell you how much or how little. But yeah, well, and- it is. It's amazing, especially in this day and age of, you know, and it's evolved. It's now part of the global family and, and so on. It's, it's evolved as, as, I mean, if you don't evolve in this business, you die. So, you know, it's good on it. Well, Bill, thank you for the memories. My pleasure. Do you wear sunscreen? Well, my answer to that, if somebody asked me, would be, well, of course I wear sunscreen. Who doesn't? Well, apparently, Nikki Reitmeyer doesn't. Can you believe that? I gave her such a hard time when I found out about that yesterday. I said, Nikki, come on. Gotta look after yourself. Wear sunscreen. And then it turns out she's not alone. According to Statistics Canada, only 30 to 40% of adults actually put on sunscreen. And 37% of adults reported at least one sunburn during the summer. That's alarming. When you think about the link to skin cancer, 7,200 Canadians were diagnosed with melanoma in 2017. 1,250 Canadians died from skin cancer. It is preventable if people properly protect themselves, even getting one sunburn. And geez, I remember talking about this, you know, more than 20 years ago when I was a health reporter on TV, even getting one sunburn exponentially increases your risk of having melanoma melanoma problems later in life. So where is the disconnect here? You know, we know we can't, you know, we, we could get skin cancer if we don't wear sunscreen, and yet people don't wear sunscreen. Dr. Beth Donaldson is with us now from Coatman Healthcare Centre to talk more about this. Dr. Donaldson, thank you for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. I have to say, these numbers surprise me that that many people don't wear sunscreen. Did they surprise you? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that that many people don't wear sunscreen, but 9,500 people are diagnosed per day with skin cancer. <laughs> Um, and that's a, a U.S. stat, so we're probably a little bit younger, uh, a little bit less than that. But, no, it is very interesting. And I think the problem is, um, you know, a, a lot of what people see from a skin cancer point of view is their grandparents or their parents or whomever just getting these little things removed here and there, not a big deal, maybe have a little scar from it. And, oh, geez, if that's all you, you get from skin cancer, not a big deal, I'll go through that when I'm 50. But the problem is, you know, yes, the basal cells and the squamous cells and little actinic keratoses that we all get are quite common. And and they do tend to happen as we get older. And they they mostly are not a big deal. But they're starting to happen, happen when we're younger. And they're starting to be more invasive. And that doesn't include the melanomas that are definitely happen when we're younger can have more of a genetic component, but definitely can be, you know, quite disfiguring and if not um, life-threatening. Right. So, and so we've done such a good job fighting skin cancer that people, what, don't perceive it as as much of a threat anymore? No, I just, they, I don't think they see it as, as serious as some of the other cancers that we get because it's not... Um, uh, you don't typically see the the major surgeries along with the chemotherapy and the radiation and, you know, right. all of that. It's kind of just minor surgery and off you go. So uh, I just don't think that people are, are putting two and two together when it comes to, hey, guess what, guys, that sun that you're enjoying, it really can cause yeah. problems. Uh, you know, earlier than later, especially if you're not covering up. Yeah, let's talk about sunburns because, you know, the report also says um, 37% of adults reported at least one sunburn during the summer. What are the Mm -hmm. problems with getting that one sunburn? Well, the sunburn just means that you have, that UV light has really penetrated 
um, that skin and and deeper. And so you can get more cell change with a, a really, you know, deep burn. Um, and I mean, any sun is a risk. Even if you tan and you, you're not a burning type person, you're still getting that risk for skin cancer. But a burn just makes that damage to the cells that much deeper and therefore that much more worrisome. Is there certain things that you should do if like as soon as you notice that you have a sunburn? Oh, get out of the sun. Okay, besides that, Um, is there any care that you can put on there? Anything to help that? Well, I mean, there's there's lots of, you know, after sun type potions out there for sure, but nothing that's going to prevent cancer later on. You just have to make sure that you're getting your skin checked yearly by a physician um, uh, throughout life, basically. And especially if you're someone who uh, had fair skin and had multiple burns as a younger person, then you definitely need to be going in maybe even every six months to have your moles looked at. And if you're someone who has a family history of, of skin cancer, for sure, then you also need to go in regularly just to have your moles reviewed. Yeah, what kind of sunscreen do you tell your patients to look for? Because nowadays there's so much concern as well about the ingredients in sunscreen. I know, right? Well, you definitely want um, a broad spectrum sunscreen and there's there's two types of barriers there's the physical barrier that reflects the uv radiation and that would be like a titanium dioxide or a zinc oxide those often people don't like because it can leave your skin kind of whitish which you know that's sort of annoying so a lot of people will go with the chemical barrier which actually absorbs uv radiation and those are most of the other um, sunscreens which you know if you're wanting to avoid chemicals then you go with more of the physical barrier sunscreens and you do need a minimum I mean some people will say a minimum of 50 60 but you know if we're looking at actual coverage SPF 30 gets about 97 percent of the UVA uh, UVA and UVB rays if you apply it correctly so if you think about someone who's about to go in the pool um, with a bathing suit on you need a shot glass full of sunscreen to cover your whole body and that's a lot of sunscreen That's a lot of sunscreen, right? Um, But you need that every two hours, even if you're not sweating or in the pool, you still need to reapply. So that facial sunscreen that you're putting on at nine in the morning, even if you haven't gone for a run or dipped in the pool, you still need to reapply by lunchtime. Right. And that's, you think, where where people fall down on this, right? Is that, yeah, they're great at putting it on once. Yeah, once. And then they don't follow up. And then remember, it doesn't have to be sunscreen. You could just wear wear a light, longer sleeve UV repellent shirt and a big hat and call it a day, you know, right. or stay in the shade. <laughs> stay in the shade. Oh, that's cute yeah. that you think people actually do that because I think I know. They, no, really, they, don't. <laughs> they really don't. They want to go out. I, yeah. I'm going to drive home. I'm going to drive by the beach and there'll be a ton of people out there soaking it up. Uh, you yeah. mentioned a, a 30 gets 97%. So what is the difference then mm. when you go 30, 50, 60, and, you know, 75? Well, an SPF at 50 would have 99%. Um, uh, of your of your coverage, so it just it just goes up a little bit each time. So um, it, it, the studies really say as long as you've got a thirty on, you're getting most of it. But if you go to any dermatologist or skin cancer specialist, they say go as big as you can. I've been looking for SPF one hundred out there. There, it's not out there. <laughs> I have not found it. Um, but you can you can get up to a fifty on regular shelves. Um, it's the same price as the thirty. So I always go with the the, the yeah. 50 if you can get it. I always just go for automatically whatever the highest is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I definitely agree with that. Right. So now let's say you haven't been as good earlier in your life about putting that sunscreen on, uh, Dr. Donaldson, and now you're getting to the point where you're a little worried about some of these marks that you're seeing on your body. Yeah. So like, what do you look for? Yeah, you, you look for um, changes in any mole. So if it becomes, uh, you know, raised or larger in diameter or ir- has an irregular border, typically um, those can be concerning or something that just gets darker and changes color can be concerning. And then anything that you have, even if it just seems like a little nick or like a, just a little scrape or something on your cheek if you have something that just continues to bleed and scrape and scab over a few months and it just doesn't seem to go away that's also something that you need to have looked at by a physician because it may not look like a mole it might just sort of look like a little cut but those things can also be skin cancer do you think people are pretty good about doing those checks 
Um, yeah, I think so. But, you know, you kind of, you have to look everywhere. You have to look at the bottom of your feet. You have to look at your back. You have to look at the top of your head, at the top of your ears, your toenails, your fingernails. Um, so I think it is important just to have that full body mold check done by your GP. And if there's anything concerning, they'll just do a little biopsy of it or send you off to dermatology. And those high risk patients definitely need to be um, screened by a dermatologist yearly. Yeah. Who are the high risk patients? Yeah, so folks who have had previous cancer, folks with a family history of melanoma, uh, people who are uh, blonde-haired, red-haired, blue-eyed, pale-skinned, grew up in Australia <laughs> types, um, those people are at a uh, larger risk for sure for having moles that go abnormal at a younger age. Right. Um, yeah. Okay, and so then uh, people who are uh, like of a certain coloring then, if you're paler, should you be extra special careful? Yeah, definitely. The more, the quicker you burn, the more careful you need to be in general. Oh, okay. However, don't don't forget that still dark skinned people can get skin cancer. Yeah. What and what about so, age here? Is it like do people tend to think of this as something that happens to older people? Yeah, they do. Uh, unfortunately, melanoma can happen, you know, as early as your twenties and. Some of the other ones, the uh, um, basal cell and squamous cells are also starting to happen a little bit earlier as well, so into 20s and 30s. So really 20 and up, you really need to be aware of where your moles are and um, continued sun protection. Of course, sun protection happens the day you're born. <laughs> it, you know, it's, it's, it's a lifelong um, endeavor. Right. Um, so we're so, we're so good, Dr. Donaldson, at protecting our faces, aren't we? But you, yeah, yeah. like everybody thinks, oh yeah, I put, I put it on my face. It's my moisturizer. I use sunscreen every single day. But do we underestimate yeah. all the other parts of our body that are exposed to the sun? You know, we do. And some of the common spots we see uh, would be the backs of your hands and your forearms just from driving, right? And yeah. having your forearm hanging off uh, the window there. Um, the tops of your heads. And in women, the shins and the lower calves especially just because you'll be out there with shorts or, or skirts and those can be common areas too. I'm always paranoid about the top of my feet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like you're wearing flip-flops. Yeah. Exactly. You don't put the sunscreen down that far, right? Well, I do now, but thank you very yeah, much. Yeah, you do. <laughs> thank you for your time on this today. Yeah. No problem. That is, that's Dr. Beth Donaldson from Co-